Look, what's that? The queen? There. <laughs> what? Where? <laughs> Your majesty! <laughs> oh, wait, it was a tree. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up, we fight the enemy shoulder to shoulder, but never show each other our backs in Cutthroat Caverns. Next, we build towns with our own personal flair, and it's for keeps with no backseats in the legacy game Charterstone. And lastly, we make Mary Ellis and the Night Witches proud as off we go in Wild Blue Yonder. I'm your host, Celeste DeAngelis. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. I'm Evan Bernstein, and I feel like I've been recently backstabbed. I'm Ed Povlitis, and I hope this new village idea doesn't backfire. I'm Joe Unfree, and I'm going to stab this spitfire in the back, but maybe I'll wait till it lands. I'm Mike Grenier, and it's your fault. You backed into my knife. Our first game up this week is Cutthroat Caverns, designed by Kurt Covert, published by Smirk and Dagger Games, 2007. We played the Anniversary Edition out in 2019. Number of players, 3 to 6, ages 14 and up. Playtime, 40 to 90 minutes. Okay, when we snuck past the ogre with this find, what were our first thoughts? Mike? I see the name Smirk and Dagger. I'm sure this will play on our baser instincts. Evan? Don't let the name Cutthroat Caverns scare you. They're more like large holes than caverns. Ed? Clearly, I'm the only adventurer here that can handle the full... Hey, that was my kill! Joe? I see it says on the box, Without teamwork, you'll never survive. Without betrayal, you'll never win. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) betray your friends at the last minute to grab the glory for yourself. Sounds like most teenagers' first D&D adventure. But (laughs) before one of us grabs this review and runs, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. In Cutthroat Caverns, an artifact of untold power lies in your hands. To claim it, you must escape the caverns alive. But many horrific beasts stand in your way. That and the greed of your companions. Hey! (laughs) I'm looking at you, Ed. Every combat round, you will set an attack card. Will you swing for a whopping 50 points of damage or hold back, awaiting a more opportune time to strike? Only the final blow matters if you are to score the kill. Hold back or sabotage your companions' plans too much, and the entire party will die. In combat, you jockey for position with your life and your desire for power in the balance. Back to you, Celeste. There you go. (laughs) This game fits squarely into Smirk and Dagger's wheelhouse. Backstabbing, screwing your neighbor. But you gotta work together. You gotta do some damage to kill these bad guys. They're not gonna die on their own. Yeah, but you don't want to be the guy who gets them to like five health and then the other guy next to you just... Does yeah. a like, quick little jab to finish him off, though. Yeah, I fell, I fell for that once. <laughs> <laughs> totally missed. Yeah. I totally missed. I got on board right away with, yeah, let me, let me just calculate exactly how much damage I should use since mm-hmm. I go fourth, and I think I'll need a 40 in order to beat this guy because I love that only the killing blow matters. But wait, Celeste, I have an action card that'll half your damage, so... 100 points! No, trip. 
their attacks all miss this round and they lose their next turn. Their next turn! Yeah. Oh, wow, wow, that was a humiliating trick. <laughs> yeah. Sometime when the monster had like 300 hit points, everybody's just plopping down cards, not really messing with each other. But then when it's like the next round, it's like, what? The monster only has 50 hit points left? All of a sudden, it's like, nope, trip. Ah, <laughs> no, I'm going first. Right. The monsters are really challenging, but part of the psychology of them is the psychology of sandbagging. You just have to decide how much can I get away with as the minimum to do what I need to do to kill this thing so I don't waste bigger cards that I can use later or, you know, get so close that I almost kill them and give the kill away. I'm concentrating more on what you guys are planning on doing than I am the monster that's trying to, you know, rip my throat out regardless. Right, which is a really great way to keep a bunch of different players engaged even when it's not their turn. Absolutely. I was constantly second guessing everything that was happening. We don't want to stand back too much because every round that the enemy is doing damage to us. Oh, and yeah. If uh, you die, you don't get the win either. Yeah, yeah, you can't play the weight game. You can't you can't bleed it out that way because you're right, Ed. The monster's going to get you guys, all of us. The monster will eventually get around to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of the monsters select different targets, too. So you might not want the monster to die that round because he's affecting player one and player three, and you happen to be player two. So sometimes you Uh, will just kind of want to let it go an extra round. But you don't really know that because when it's doing that, that's one of the the tricks. Uh, When you see the initiative card in front of you, that's not necessarily the initiative that matters when the monster swings for damage. Yeah. It's determined randomly at the end of the round. So you might be player five, but he might be the one that hits you because you get doubt number one. Right. Well, if you have a card that's going to switch your initiative, you're guaranteeing yourself not to get beat up next round, though. Sure. And you can play a card that makes somebody else get hit instead of you on purpose. It doesn't matter how many victory points you have at the moment. Uh, if you don't make it out of the dungeon alive, you lose. A couple of us adopted a strategy of applying tons of damage the first round, just staying out of the kill range. And then the second round is like a subtlety game where you're like, okay, which cards are likely to come out to mess up what I'm going to do and how can I mitigate it? So I think it is a good strategy to sort of beat the monster down hard on the first round and get him to a location where the kill shot is likely to happen this round. Well, making that kind of calculation is really tough because the cards range from zero damage to 100 damage, and then there's multipliers too, so you can do 200 damage in one shot. Yeah, it worked well for us, though. I think a couple of those monsters went down exactly that way, maybe three of them. I was disappointed that we didn't get to do one of the monsters that isn't a monster. One is called the Riddle Room and one's the Trap Room, where you're basically in the Trap Room just taking a ton of damage based on what cards are drawn. (laughs) Well, I think our final boss was cool, called Hate. Yeah. And based on what cards we play with how many hit points it got and how much damage it did every round. In our case, Hate had 75 life points and did 75 damage every round. And that was our fault. Seeing as how we only each had 50 points of damage we could absorb. Maximum. <laughs> so one swing and you're done. You know, you could have made hate have five health if one person put in a five and everybody put a zero. We wouldn't want to do that because only uh, the person who puts in the most valuable card gets to go first. And if everybody's low balling, that means that you're going to be able to get the first strike and kill. 
Yeah, it's tricky. That That is one of the really good examples of how this game uses the players and the psychology surrounding their actions to balance the game out. Right. We're creating the monsters that we're trying to fight, in a sense. So <laughs> Sounds like a metaphor somehow. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of funny how he often didn't quite really want to be first because that was the person who'd often dogpiled. It was a lot of second guessing and calculating all the sneakiness was a lot of fun and very engaging. I thought the art was also very good in engaging you in the game. The art looked really nice. There's a lot of space devoted to the art, which is great. In several games of this style where there's a boss fight at the end of the round, the cards are too small and you can't really appreciate which boss you're fighting because the art isn't big enough. The PC cards actually had a similar balance. Generally, there were three pieces of fairly generic flavor text about the way you would expect the dwarf fighter or the elven archer or whoever to behave. And it always ended with the phrase, and trusts no one. (laughs) (laughs) That was the one thing that everyone in that party had in common. I'll read you Orn Hammerfist. Orn Hammerfist, cold as mountain stone. Orn brawls when he can, levels an axe when he must, and trusts no one. Yeah, he really decided to stick with the stereotypes here, which I think was a good choice because he didn't want to get distracted by some backstory or whatever. You know what an elven archer is. You can just move on. (laughs) You don't want a colorful text because what you're here to do is to stay alive, kill the monster, and grab the glory for yourself. And we got to play the new Anniversary Edition, which has nicely upgraded components. Not only is the art better over the original edition from over 10 years ago, the player boards are dual-layer cardboard, so it got you that nice little peg feeling. It was awesome. And the Encounter Tracker had the same treatment. It already reminded me a little bit of Dread Curse, you know, another Smirk and Dagger game. But while both games have that you know, frenemies kind of flavor in there, the themes and the and the play of the games are quite different. You know, Smirk and Dagger is actually the publisher of the game me and Ed designed called Student Bodies. Uh, we were showing it off at a con with the intent of self-publishing, but when Kurt saw it, um, and some of the guys at Cryptozoic saw it also, um, they started asking us if we were willing to license it. The two groups went off onto the side to talk about it, and when they came back, uh, they both agreed that Kurt from Smirk and Dagger was the right guy to publish it since all his games have a really take that backstabby kind of feel to him. It fit right into his brand. Ooh, you got fought over. I know. It was really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but to that note, Smirk and Dagger also now has a new brand of their license called Smirk and Laughter. In this game here, I felt like it was really cool way to take a whole campaign of adventurers out and just boil it down to the boss fights. And the weirdness of the bosses made me think, wow, what was the rest of that part of the campaign like? You have a set in action to plan out your round. So at the beginning of the round, you only know like basically when you're going to go and you're like, all right. I'm going third. What's the other two guys going to do? And then what cards should I play in order to maximize my chances of getting the kill? Yeah, the action cards have some nuances to them, such as playing your action card to counter an attack either before or after the attack occurs, which is actually quite important. So you had to pay close attention to the details of your action cards if you were going to use them to maximum benefit. Otherwise, it might be too late. And the cards were very well designed in that most of them you would turn to the side or the bottom where 
the change was written. So potential changes were already on the card so you could keep better track of them. That also prevented you from going too far into the multipliers. So you can't do a times four because your card rotation only goes up to times two on it. Everybody else who's got them, play them because I'm going That's next. That's to kill. Anybody, anybody, anybody? Uh, play in response to any attack card. Rotate the card to its next lowest. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a 20, I think, right? Oh, yeah. yep, 20. Oh, curses. And also the monsters have a way of changing the landscape at a battle. For example, some of them attack the players who did the weakest damage. So now you're incentivized to not be the one throwing out the weak cards. Yeah, and you only have 50 health and all the damage ha happens in increments of five. So a monster will do 10, 15 points of damage at a time. So you don't have all day to just let them sit around. Yeah, the amount of health you start off with is based on the length of the game you play. They, they have a new mechanic now where you can set the number of encounters and also that depends on the number of life points you start with. Um, and I really like the way they scale the encounters to the number of players. On the bottom of the monster card, it tells you, you know, if there's three players, they'll have that many health. If there's five players, it's, it's higher. Okay, explorers, get your daggers out. It's time to dig up or bury Cutthroat Caverns. Joe? I wrote a poem to explain why I want to dig this up. Attack cards are red, action cards blue, stay out of my way, or it's the end of you. Evan? <laughs> That's a great poem, Joe. I didn't write a poem, but I came to the exact same conclusion. Dig it up. Ed? It is a highly competitive game where you are mostly just looking out for number one. But sometimes you need to dish out the damage because the encounter is so dangerous, it needs to end now. Dig her up. Mike? I felt used. I felt betrayed. Why does that make me want to go back for more? Dig it up. The excitement of trying to sneak in the killing blow is palpable here. My eyes never stop darting around the table. Dig it up. Mike, where can you find this game? You can find Cutthroat Caverns Anniversary Edition at local game stores and online. The MSRP is about 35 bucks. If you have thoughts about Cutthroat Caverns, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our next game up this week is Charterstone, designed by Jamie Stagmeyer, published by Stonemeyer Games, number players 1 to 6, ages 14 and up, playtime 60 minutes. Okay, when we discovered this find behind our Choose Your Own Adventure books, what were our first thoughts? Mike? I have to put a lot of trust in a designer to ruin their game on purpose. Evan? By their very nature, legacy games always involve destruction. Ed? Who knew it took a village to build a village? Joe? I thought it was nice to start the game able to see the entire map, even if most of it wasn't filled in yet. The game cards are peel and stick on the board, forever changing it! Epic! But before we contemplate the butterfly effect of this game, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. Charterstone is a competitive legacy game where you construct buildings and populate a shared village. In the prosperous kingdom of Green Gully, the Forever King has decreed that citizens must colonize the vast lands beyond its borders. In an effort to start a new village, the Forever King has selected six citizens for the task, each of whom has a unique set of skills they use to build their charter. Building stickers are permanently 
Celeste permanently. Ed, oh, Ed, hang on. Here's the tissue. <laughs> so fun. These building stickers are permanently added to the game board and become action spaces for any player to use. Thus, you start off with simple choices and few workers, but soon you have a bustling village with dozens of possible actions. Your journey through Charterstone's many secrets will last 12 games, but it doesn't end there. Your completed village will be a one-of-a-kind worker placement game with plenty of variability. That's wild. We haven't covered that many legacy games in this show. Legacy games are big, and they are long, and Mm -hmm. they are usually very in-depth. This game is different from Gloomhaven in that when you're done playing it, you can play it as a regular worker placement game. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So guys, does that soften the blow for you in that you don't have to throw it out when you're done playing like most legacy games? That helps me because I'll feel like I'm designing a game instead of destroying it. There you go, Mike. That's the that's the glass half full attitude <laughs> oh, yeah. for Legacy like Games. Yeah. What a nice way to put it. Yeah. Well, once you play it all the way to the end, it's kind of locked in, right, to that set of stuff you have on there, but it just becomes a new game. Correct. It is so fun drawing a card, realizing the card itself is a sticker, <laughs> peeling off a portion of the sticker and placing it on the board as a new location. Ugh. Cool stuff. I just wanted to just make sure everybody understands that you are building the board. I, I really like the way it starts off too, because the, it comes with they call the Chronicle, which is basically the rule book, but it's mostly empty. And you're like, huh? So you read the first card, and it's introducing you to the game. You're taking stickers off and adding it to the rule book. And then later, you'll be covering up those rules because the rules change. Whoa. Stickers over stickers? Ah! <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so the first time I put a rule in the rule book, which I insisted <laughs> that I stick myself, despite the fact that, you know, Ed's usually the rules guru, yep. I stuck it on slightly askew, a tiny ah! bit below where it's... <laughs> No. Heresy. Good thing you weren't there, Mikey. I mean, I would cringe and you would have been flipping out. I would have been jumping out of my chair. (laughs) I didn't say a word. I just pushed the rule book back to Ed and watched him (laughs) rub that rule about 10 times as if he could push it back into place. (laughs) So let me, I have a question about that. So when you're putting the rules into the book, is it like a group decision to add a new rule or is it the player's turn who it is that can add that rule themselves? It's just the next sequence of events as you take out card number four or whatever. It's an instruction. You peel it and it goes in the spot for rule number four in the book. So it's not like a random draw of the rule. There's a box with all the cards in it. Each package has its own name. It is so adorable. It's like a little world. Each player gets their own box. Our charters. The charter box. That's oh. right. The we each have our own charter boxes. You know, it's so adorable that, I mean, the art is like what you might see on the board of a really high-quality kids game. Uh, like, if, if I'd suddenly found out that there were going to be Smurfs in the game, it wouldn't really have, have you know, surprised me that much at first. Although the mechanics and the scheming for victory points as the game unfolds definitely reaches the adult level. Hey, Mike, write that down. Make a Smurf legacy game, okay? Smurf legacy. Oh, no. 
To get back to your question, Mike, the rules start off in a linear fashion, but soon you have to make decisions. What box do I open? Do I want to send coins or goods back? And that changes the game from that point on. That's awesome. And who gets to make the choice, the whole group or just the person whose turn it was? Or how does that work? Well, I mean, it depends on which per- who turn it is and what they do. Right. It is each turn, each player is making decisions about their village. So we're each growing our own village based oh, on okay. which charter we were given. So the name of the game, Charterstone, is because we are each given a charter to start a village. And each portion of the map is a different village. So we each control a portion. And in that portion, we make our decisions And based on our decisions, different things come to our village. So it's in that way, it's very much choose your own adventure. But we're all part of the same area. So you can use everybody's board. It's not like your own private little board. You can go to every space on the board, no matter who put it there. How legitimately upset would you be if I, you know, went outside the margins, kind of like what Celeste did here? I won't, I won't say uh, we won't be friends anymore, <laughs> but it, um, it would take a knock down. See, Celeste, what you're supposed to do is place it over. As players in the game, we're making individual decisions. Uh, we make some, you know, we collaborate on some decisions and we're sort of forming not we're not just playing in an artificial world represented on the board we're also collaborating on creating an artificial you know culture to go with that you know with the society evolving in that place am i the only one who's really concerned about a forever king what <laughs> yeah transylvania has a similar arrangement doesn't it <laughs> well the forever king is very cleverly running his politics because i was so fully engaged in building my village i didn't even have time to worry about the forever king i'm like okay forever king that's how i live i get it but oh i get to open this cool box <laughs> And the game also comes with a bunch of smaller boxes that have secret components in there. You don't know what's going to be in there until the index tells you to pull out box number whatever and reveal these components. So your cards sometimes have crates on them, and then an action is to eventually get your crate open, and that may open other boxes to reveal other things. It's like, ah, Russian nesting dolls, awesome. That's a total staple of any legacy game, though. That's what makes them really exciting. That's what makes it worth tearing up a card or ruining the board for. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Charterstone. Joe? The concepts of the fantasy world are fascinating and entertaining. I'll dig it up. I found it a delight. Evan? There is an awful lot to like here. It's a legacy game I want to finish someday. Ed, please keep it safe. Dig up and treasure. Mike? I did not get to join you guys on this fantastical voyage, but I am probably going to buy a copy for myself anyway. Ed? It can feel so strange to be placing stickers on this lovely board and in the manual, but it's also so exciting to be crafting the world that you play. Dig this up. You get to write the names of your characters on the gameplay cards. Case closed. Dig it up. Ed, where can you find this game? Charterstone is available at your local store and online. The MSRP is about 70 bucks.
If you have thoughts about Charterstone, let us know. We would love to hear about your villages. We are at Witch Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our last game up this week is Wild Blue Yonder, designed by Chris Janik, published by GMT Games in 2017. Number of players, 1 to 8. Ages 12 and up, playtime, 15 to 180 minutes. <laughs> okay, when we did a flyby on this find, what were our first thoughts? Joe? It's interesting and different from some other flight games to have shooting your guns count as a maneuver. Mike? There's no board? No tape measures? How is this going to work? Ed? Enemy fighter, 3 o'clock high. Turn to new engage. Evan? Yonder is a specific measurement. It is exactly 240 stone throws in length. Aw, where is my old stuffed Snoopy when I need it? But before we start painting mission symbols near the cockpit, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Wild Blue Yonder, a World War II air combat game, you'll fly planes into dogfights modeling the air war over the European theater from 1940 to 1944. You'll engage your enemy by trying to maneuver into position by playing cards from your hand, but your opponent will try to respond to your attacks by playing the correct card to counter your moves. Your playing stats will determine how many cards you can hold in your hand, how many new cards you can draw each turn, and how well you can attack. Wild Blue Yonder contains a dozen campaigns and over 200 aircraft. Get ready for the dogfight of your life. Okay, I did not get to play this game with you guys, but I was nearby when you guys were playing it. You heard all the commotion, yeah. I did hear all the commotion, and I did get a chance to lift up the box, which I am glad I didn't herniate my back doing so, because it weighs about the same as a toddler. (laughs) <laughs> it's a heavy box it has lots of cards in it yeah i find it interesting though that you said that because this is probably as stripped down as a dog fight game could possibly be <laughs> right and yet if you want to play a campaign it comes with a 40 page rule book mm-hmm. and it and and boys and girls it does not have many pictures in it <laughs> but they yeah. have good illustrations about some of the stuff but the missions are very much the most complex part of the game if you want to play a campaign you're gonna like oh we're gonna go through the battle of britain and we'll have missions we can fight and you'll have to keep rosters of pilots and planes and you know hope that the battle of attrition of the war goes in your favor but if you just want to play a 15 or 30 minute game, you can just whip out a few planes and play a dogfight. Yeah, and you, then you only have to read the 20 page dogfight rule book. <laughs> I'm not joking. That is not a joke. But to be uh, to be fair, GMT are known for making games for true history buffs or with really great amounts of historical accuracy and historical knowledge. And when you guys were playing, it really did play light and breezy. Ultimately, it's a card game. And that's the significance of actually having counter maneuvers to what you're doing on the card. You know, you don't have to go and fish out some index sheet. You know, it's right there. 
there's only a few basic rules you really need to know. Otherwise, all the information you need is on the card. And they had cool flavor to them. Like, you know, they had different names of the maneuvers, so it sounded fun. Like, for example, I could be attacking you within my sights. And then Mikey might play, I'm going to do a barrel roll. And then, oh, I'm going to do a tight turn. And then, oh, I'm going to scissors out of your way. No? Yeah. And then on the bottom of the card, it just says, you know, this maneuver counters this maneuver, basically. So it's really simple to understand. And the box is chock-a-block with tons of cards, all of which are interesting for their accuracy to World War II aircraft. That is what I find the most interesting about GMT games, their accuracy in their drawings. So you actually get to see what all these planes looked like that were flown in World War II, and then you get to use them in a game. And it was four artists used for this game? Yes, four separate artists. Oh, you would not be able to tell based on the art. It's very uniform. In the beginning, I I mentioned that there's no tape measures or anything. So you're in a dogfight in the air, and you'd imagine, oh, I have to know what distance we are apart and stuff. They stripped all that out of there, and you just choose who you're going to engage with. And they also account for stuff like altitude in a really simple way. You're either very high to very low and you just flip a little chip to show what height you're at and if you're not at the same height as the other plane you're not fighting them yeah but i also like the realism they add in there too for example if you're at very high altitude your horsepower is reduced which is the number of cards you get to draw because the cards in your hand represent your plane's energy Uh, the cards represent everything your plane can do yeah and it would make you think that the cards were going to be totally full of a bunch of tiny text. They are not. Each thing is very cleanly represented inside these cool gauges Mm -hmm. that they show you at the bottom of the card, uh, like as if they were inside the cockpit. Like there's a horsepower gauge, a burst gauge, a perform gauge. It's all right there. And there's just a little number and the word. And it's just a couple of stats that really matter. Like the performance indicates your hand size. And your horsepower indicates the number of cards you can draw each turn. Another thing that comes in the box is the campaign logs, which are really cool because they tell you exactly which planes to use based on what was actually used in the real-life campaign during the war. For example, the 8th Air Force 1943 campaign log. It would tell you what was in that Air Force. And you can use it to keep track of what happened during your, the missions that you played. Were those planes shot down or damaged or did they make it back? And so you'll have them available for the next mission of the campaign. Yeah, this is probably the GMT game that I've seen with the most restraint out of any that I've played so far. Uh, the narrative is boosted in the campaign games where you get involved with a list of these named pilots. The real pilots from the war? Yeah. That is super cool. I think another cool mechanic they added with the altitude is that whenever you change altitude, you also have to either expend a card to climb or you gain a new card when you descend. Yeah, that's so intuitive. Sometimes you want to duck down low just to get a little more energy so you can have some more options. I had to do that in one of the games I played because I blew out all my cards (laughs) fighting at a high altitude. I'm like, I'm not going to have enough cards to defend myself up here. I got to drop so I can get more cards. Yeah, it was kind of funny how people were gunning for the people who had small hands. Aha, they're a little out of energy. Maybe I can get them. I was. (laughs) 
you know, I think that a lot of people shy away from these GMT games because GMT is not afraid to put a 40 page rule book in and to have 20 pounds of paper inside of their boxes. <laughs> and these big, thick rule books are just for people who want to go deeper. Uh, if you can get one person in your group of gamers that would be willing to read through the GMT rule books and simply teach you the game. It can be learned quickly and it is a great educational game. You learn a lot of history with these games. And, and they, it's not true. dull. That's the thing. It is not dull and overwhelming with a bunch of, you know, niche stuff. You get to feel how, like Evan said, he's not going to have enough to defend himself up here. He's got to dive to get that feeling of how the pilots were thinking. Mm -hmm. All with just a handful of cards. It's great. This game was originally released as the Down in Flames air combat game in 1992. <laughs> Wild Blue Down Yonder is a better name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. naming your game Down in Flames. Well, probably, that edition you know. only covered World War II up to 1942. And uh, the more games were added, uh, some of them are out of print now. But finally, GMT decided to make an entire new game covering the European theater you know, all the way up to 1944. And it's truly a deluxe edition of the game. Everything's been spiced up nicely. The backbreakingly heavy deluxe version. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a gamer, or even if you're not, and you're interested in history, or you need to learn a section of history, I would check out GMT Games first, because I'll bet you they have a game about that era. Come for the game, stay for the history. And now, which game first will sing a chorus of the first four lines of the U.S. Air Force song? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Everyone have your lyrics up? Look at my section. I, I, I'm doing it. I'm ready. Sing hold along on, with Evan. Hold on. Let me get in here. I don't want to <laughs> sing. I really don't want to. Let me see. Of course All you right. don't. That's why we're doing it. Oh. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Off, Off we, go. we go. Into the into wild, wild blue yonder. yonder. Climbing high into the sun. The sun. That was horrendous. <laughs> okay, explorers, get your shovels out. It's time to dig up or bury Wild Blue Yonder. Ed? I learned this game in about 15 minutes at the WBC, and I had a blast playing the tournament. The combat feels exciting, realistic, and fun. Dig this up if you have any interest in World War II combat. Joe? I usually prefer games about war to be more strategic and less tactical, but this game does exactly what it's setting out to do and does it very well. If you like World War II air combat, you should dig this up. Evan? This card game is easy to comprehend, and the games are manageable 30 minutes or so. And it invites old airplane noises to be made while playing. <laughs> so that, that's a dig up. Dig it up. Mike? This is a great introduction to a strategy game. It's clean, gets to the heart of the theme in a very beautiful, minimalistic way. So dig it up. I didn't get a chance to play, but even on my flybys of the table you guys were playing on, it looked really interesting. Evan, where can you find it? $70 to $80 at most online game stores. Hope you can lift it. <laughs> if you have thoughts about Wild Blue Yonder, let us know. Fly on by. We're at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. If you get a chance, please leave us a rating or a review. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like more perks and content from our show for just $3 a month, you can go to our website and become a supporter today. And that gets you our brand new podcast exclusive for patrons called The Post Show. Happy gaming, explorers. Off we go into the wild sky yonder. Keep the wings level and true. Tally ho! 